Welcome to Season 8 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Passionate about leadership education? You want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I'm Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And this is the beginning of our eighth season. We're both very excited, right, Dan? Couldn't be more excited. (laughs) This season, we're going to focus on research and scholarship in the field. We'll ask the question, where do leadership educators go for research? And so, as always, we'll talk to a variety of guests who are journal editors, who lead uh, publications for practitioners, leadership scholars. We'll talk to a, a variety of folks so that we can paint this full picture of what research looks like. Today, um, our episode will focus on the editor role of a leadership publication. We'll be joined by Editor-in-Chief Dr. David Rush and Associate Editor Dr. Danielle Disowell from the Journal of Campus Activities, Practice, and Scholarship. Their insights on what makes leadership great, um, what makes articles great, trends in the field, all of the fun, cool stuff that you imagine will go into leadership research. We're going to talk about that today. Um, We'll also talk a little bit maybe about the editing process, what authors should remember, you know, just some good advice to help those that want to, you know, start publishing or continue publishing, just giving them some good advice. Uh, So welcome to the show, Dave and Danielle. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Yeah, we're excited to, to have you here. And, and Dave, welcome back. Um, Thanks. <laughs> as well. <laughs> and Daniel, great to have you on the show for the for the first time. And so before we, we dive into the journal, I'm curious if you could just share what your current roles are at your institution, but then also share a little bit about how did you get into this role with JCAPS? Uh, great question. So what I do when I'm not doing podcasting, I'm an associate professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I teach, uh, run, do research lab, uh, university committees, things like that. And most, and most of the work that I do is focused on leadership, leadership education, and the leadership capacity development of young adults. Uh, I'll get into the journal in, in, in two seconds, but Danielle, maybe you could, you could introduce yourself and then we'll go back and forth. Yep. Sounds great, Dave. So I am clinical professor at Indiana University, and I coordinate the higher education and student affairs master's program um, at the School of Education here on the IUB campus. Um, In addition to that, a lot of my research centers around looking at professional development for student affairs. Um, I am very active in our faculty governance here on campus, as well as engaging with our students at the undergraduate level as well to continue to kind of stay abreast of what our master's students are dealing with within their working environments to figure out how to create those connections between um, practice and scholarship so that their education is meaningful and sets them up for the best success in what it is that they're doing. And so I'll punt it back to Dave for how we ended up to the journal, but probably those two intros were good previews to how we ended up here. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So so uh, JCAPS, the Journal of Campus Activities, Practice and Scholarship, it has only been around since 2019. Uh, we have only been around for a few years. So Danielle and I have been involved in putting this journal together literally from scratch. 
uh, and how how I got involved. And Danielle, you probably had a similar story too. Uh, friend of the podcast, Dr. Kathy Guthrie, sent me an email saying, "Hey, I'm on this this board of people. We're thinking of starting a journal." Uh, related to NACA, the National Association of Campus Activities. Uh, we're going to call it JCAPS, Journal of Campus Activities, Practice, and Scholarship. And we're looking for people to be on the editorial board. We think you might be interested in being the editor, Dave. What do you think? Uh, that was late 2017. Uh, and it took uh, myself and a team with Danielle and a few others on it to, uh, what, maybe about a year to, we had to do things like, what, what, what are we going? What's the paragraph we're going to use to even describe what our journal's about? Uh, what are the types of things we're going to evaluate articles on? How are we going to build a reviewer team? Uh, it took us about a year to be able to do that, and our first issue came out in spring of 2019. Yeah. I think the other thing that was super challenging about that was also thinking about how are we going to make it accessible to a broader audience that was more than just faculty in higher education and student affairs looking for publication locations, but really wanted to focus on how do we engage um, new scholars into the practice of submitting articles and thinking about how to refine some of those messages that they want to send both on what they're doing, but also what they're observing more nationally within the field of student affairs. You know, student affairs is is ripe for those opportunities. You know, as a, a former practitioner, uh, you know, one of the big things was how do I ensure that what I'm doing is is fun and engaging for students, right? But also they're developing and using some of the scholarship, the the research is super helpful in not just understanding what's happening, but also doing some planning. So I, I'm sure that especially since most of us had to either go through grad school or had a master's degree in something. Uh, I'm sure that that was super helpful. I also think how many cool things start with a Kathy Guthrie email, right? <laughs> we, at ILA, we had a Florida State get together, like everybody who had a Florida State degree. And I'm sure it started with a, hey, we'll all be in town. Like, let's do something. So I, I'm sure that list is somewhere, right, Dan? And then you got uh, Kat, uh, Susan Comovis to sing you happy birthday, <laughs> well, along with the rest of the group. But but uh, having her in the, in the chorus was definitely uh, memorable, if I remember right, Lauren. <laughs> she did. It was my, it just happened my birthday and ILA collided. And at lunch, she found out and shared her, her singing skills uh, with the, the group that was there. Very, very special experience. Love it. Fun. <laughs> so, so that's, I, you know, that blows my mind that y'all started this in such a short amount of time. Like what, what kind of experiences or skills did y'all have that you felt made the process, you know, more doable or more conceivable to just kind of jumpstart this? Uh, Danielle, feel free to, to, to weigh in also. I, I think we tried, very, and, and the we that I'm talking about is, is inclusive. Anyone who was involved in the conversations to, to begin this journal, we felt in, in the, we felt that we needed to find people who were good scholars, uh, rigorous scholars, but they also do the work. Uh, and I think in, in this, this student affairs is not uh, a, a alone in this, but in any practice oriented field, established jur scholarly journals, often what we see in that author pool, they're people that don't do the work themselves. These are full-time researchers, full-time, they're, they're, they spend all of their time doing the research and they're a little disconnected to the practice. And the mirror image is also true. The people who are doing the practice are disconnected from the folks who are building the scholarship. And we felt really strongly that we wanted to find people that were able to straddle 
both paths. Because if we weren't able to do that, then we weren't going to be able to recruit authors that could do the same thing. And I think the other thing is thinking about um, what the expectation is. So a journal that is inviting people to do something probably for the first time has a different expectation than a journal that is pulling articles from a research team that's been established for the last five years. And what that means is that it gives us space to allow folks to feel comfortable to be like, I'd like to do what I see and what I read within other journals, but I don't know what step one is to do that. And most of the time, there is no class in your master's or your PhD program that says how to submit and write a journal 101. <laughs> so this offers us that opportunity to, to straddle both thinking about um, new faculty as well as experienced faculty, but also practitioners who see at a conference, either that be a NACA conference or NASPA or ACPA who are sharing what it is that's happening on campus or innovations that they're doing that are grounded in literature. And they're sharing this beautiful story that other people are furiously writing down. And it's that can be put into a journal to be an article that can be then disseminated to help others figure out how to improve practice. And so it's kind of thinking about how do we create those pathways, but make it feel accessible, make people feel welcome through the process, and also that they'll be helped through the journey so that it's not something that is, you know, submitted and, you know, we'll good luck. And if it doesn't work out, well, we'll just send you this, you know, not so nice note yeah. <laughs> of what it is that um, went wrong with it, but more of a developmental approach, which was our first conversations with Dave as the team was how do we make this journal developmental in its approach, which was the Kathy Guthrie email that I get <laughs> to focus on how do you look at that developmental component to help to help build the scholars and to help folks understand the importance of dissemination of information. That's such an interesting concept because if you're, like you said, working in the day-to-day, -day, you know 100% that you, you, you have a unique experience that can be shared and you know the, the standard is to go to a conference and talk about it. But beyond that, you know, listing the conference presentation on your, your CV or your resume, you know it can sometimes die there, right? But knowing that, you can put it in these spaces where other folks like you are reading it and you're able to build. It almost adds like a level of skill or work experience or something to the roles that student affairs professionals have. And, and even I feel like it helps bridge the gap between masters and doctorate. So if at some point you think you're going to go back, having some of this research, having it published, having other people commenting and, and sharing it can help further those experiences. Uh, so, so the development, you know, it, it's almost a, a career path, right? Definitely. And, 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 and to that point, uh, Lauren, we were also really intentional when we, when we built the structure of what we wanted JCAPS to look like, that we had a very specific student submission process in Portal. So we're, we're hoping for students, people, and, and, and students who are undergrads, students who are master's students, they don't just have to be uh, doctoral students working on their, their dissertation to uh, be able to submit their work because they're thinking in a scholarly way, the same way that faculty are thinking, the same way that practitioners 
who are who are aware of the field are are, are thinking about things. So uh, we 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 specifically wanted to send the message. We welcome those types of submissions also. I love that approach and and making that one of the the key values about you know developing scholars, not just it being a, a transactional you know repository or what have you. That which uh, we we had is the case with some with some, but certainly not all peer reviewed journals. Uh, you know, I'm curious too with that. There's been a lot of conversation. I mean, I've certainly been a part of uh, of conversations and dialogue. I mean, I think it came out a lot during those ILAC, that Inter-Association Leadership Education Collaborative Meetings that Craig Slack was holding at University of Maryland. That was a, a collection of, well, we had folks from uh, from NACA there. I think it was Bill Smedic, right, was, was I think, representing them. And we had NASPA and ACPA and ILA and AI, I mean, all these folks coming together. And one of the themes that always came up was, well, we don't really, student affairs practitioners often find that it isn't accessible or it seems too daunting or it's not valued as part of their job or what have you to submit any type of scholarship outside of maybe a newsletter or even sometimes that can be like, you know, a, a Herculean thing to, to expect from from someone who's working, you know, much more than the 40 hours a week that they're expected to or asked to. And so I'd be curious. So I saw on the website that there's, you had a summer writing cohort for JCAPS and NAC Emerging Scholars. What, how did that go? And are you doing that again? Yeah. So one of our uh, uh, advisory board members is Dr. Jan Arminio, who just finished a long stint being involved in uh, editing the Journal of College Student Development. Uh, And she's she's been helping us get JCAPS off the ground. Uh, She led a process where we sent out an invitation to uh, all uh, all uh, folks who are involved in NACA, the National Association of Campus Activities, saying if, if you have a goal to write in a scholarly way, whether that's going to get published in JCAPS or not, if you have a goal to get published somewhere else, uh, we're not promising anything getting accepted, but we will walk you through some steps that you need to think about uh, to, to help support your work as a scholarly writer in, in the field. Uh, to Danielle's point, no one takes a graduate student class in this. This was designed to, as a really practical focus for folks over the summer when things might be a little bit slower. Uh, I, they, they, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, super time consuming. It was maybe a total of six hours spread over two and a half months. Uh, and the goal was to finish the la- that last session. They would at least have a rough draft of something they were thinking about. Well, and I think one of the things too, to think about um, when we when we hear some of those narratives is a reminder of how um, student affairs practitioners, especially, and our graduate school experiences, we can remember, when did we wait to write the paper? <laughs> <laughs> and so sometimes it's all about just getting the first set of words down so that you kind of have a sense of the ideas that you want to share. And I think one of the things that would be important for folks to hear is that if you can do that, then reach out to somebody who can help you get some of that initial feedback to figure out how to how to edit the piece. So I know I'm I'm sure probably Dave does this as well, but in class in the classes that I teach now, um, most of the papers the students write that um, I want them to really think through, there are versions of it that they submit to me in drafts so that they get feedback so that they can rewrite it because they wait till the last minute to do the first piece. And if that's the only thing they're going to turn into me, then we don't set them up 
to think about how to submit something to a journal if we're not also helping them understand how to take feedback and then incorporate that feedback into the next iteration of a paper that they're writing. So it's essentially kind of thinking about the same thing. It's super scary to put something down for the first time, but if you can put it down and you've got somebody you trust or you're willing to reach out to, to give some initial feedback, then you can start to figure out how to form some of those thoughts and ideas. And I think that that's what the writing group did, especially over the summertime was allow people to some of those sharing of ideas in a format that initially just gets it down and then it can start to take shape after that um, if you can give it some time. It doesn't have to be perfect the first time you put it down. And in my opinion, it should never be perfect the first time you put it down because if it is, then you've lost the critical thought process of where something can be improved Mm -hmm. and how communication is being shared or disseminated to others where there might be a gap. Yeah, love that. And it helps to build a community of practice around around the journal itself too, right? Which is which is great. Are you planning to do it again this this upcoming summer? And then I've got another question. We, we are hoping to do that. We have not yet engaged in the conversation to the uh, to think about the logistics, but that is our tentative plan. Okay. Okay. No, just thinking about folks that might be listening that are that are yeah. interested in that. Yeah. And we've got we're, we're lucky to have so many listeners that are in student affairs spaces. So you know, so so you know, I think that's that's a good segue, right? Because Running a journal doesn't isn't just about reviewing manuscripts and putting out acceptance and rejection emails or revise and resubmits, right? So you've got you're developing a new cadre of of practitioner of of scholar leaders, perhaps or academics. We love to throw that word around. So what, like, what were some of the other fra- challenges that y'all faced as you're getting this journal off the ground? You know, stakeholders, uh, politics. Um, how the heck do you? publish a journal, right? Like institutional support. I mean, I think too about like, Danielle, you mentioned you're, you're like, you're in a student affairs and higher education program. Um, That's where my doctorate was too. And I know that Dave came from a program like that too. But now Dave, you're 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 in an agricultural and an extension program, right? I mean, were they like, yes, go be a JCAPS chief editor? Or were they were like, hmm, what does this have to do with your job? You know, I mean, what 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 can y'all tell me about, about some of that kind of stuff? Uh, I, I would uh, so a, a faculty member at the University of Illinois. Uh, if you say you got you've been invited to become the editor in chief of a journal, the, the the conversation after that, everything else is nodding heads. Okay, so good. regardless <laughs> of the topic, uh, oh, you wanna you wanna do you do the Journal of Animal Husbandry? Go right ahead, uh, like <laughs> things like that, right? The trying to figure out how to frame some things. When you're starting a journal from scratch, you have no budget, and the uh, NACA I think was super supportive of. Uh, being able to throw some money at this. They understood that a journal is not going to happen for free. Uh, at the same time, I don't think that uh, NACA, even, even still, uh, looks at how much uh, a journal that, like the Journal of Campus, uh, the Journal of uh, College Student Development, for example, using that, it comes out, uh, I think it's up to eight times a year now. There's 12 to 15 articles that come out in every issue. That is only uh, the tip of the iceberg in terms of how many articles are submitted that don't get accepted through, all the way through publication. That takes a whole army of folks and a lot of time. And so far, and I, and I know I'm speaking for Danielle too, and everyone else on the JCAPS team, we're volunteers. We're volunteering our time. That It's working for now. It's not going to work forever. Uh, especially if JCAPS wants to wants to grow, so you might file that under maybe political things to think about in a in a in a journal. Is uh, right now it it exists in on the, the the goodwill of the people who are putting all of the time and effort and energy into it. Uh, I'll also say 
I, I mentioned uh, the College Student Development Journal as it's one example in higher ed, the people who are doing research on higher education, there's a, a cadre of a small one of top tier journals that it's very difficult to get an article accepted in those journals. Uh, and especially right when we were beginning, but we still see this in, in, in JCAPs because we don't have that um, exclusivity, I guess you might say, of, of a low acceptance rate. I feel like we got a lot of submissions that got rejected somewhere else. And someone said, oh, JCAPs will accept it. They're still new. They have a high acceptance rate that weren't really related to campus activities work or put together in the most rigorous way and definitely not positioned to advance our field of scholarship for how we understand how things work. So we had to go through a little bit of a winnowing process and messaging to folks, this is what JCAPs is for. This is what the standard is. Uh, and to Danielle's point, that's a... That's a complicated dance of trying to say this is rigorous field advancing things that are that, that we're putting out. And, you know, practitioner person who has never put something together, you should try to do this, too. Right. That's a, because they can. And it's totally accessible. But it's a complicated dance trying to make that message fit and land in a broad variety of folks. D Danielle, I know you have other thoughts to, to add to that, too. <laughs> I think the um, the other thing, I mean, I echo all of that, Dave, the the other piece that that is um, complicating is to get the peer reviewers. So the thing that makes JCAPs appealing to especially to new faculty or to be the article that is I got rejected from the high tier. And so let me try it here is because it's peer reviewed. So that has some weight in the in the academic world to at least say peer reviewed, even if it's not a top tier journal. But we need to get folks to peer review the articles and to provide constructive feedback. And so that, too, has been a challenge because all of that is volunteer work as well. So trying to find individuals who are willing to provide some of that feedback, um, spend the time to really outline some solid comments. Um, in the very beginning, we were spending a lot of time kind of um, rewording what was coming in and then um, trying to figure out how to share that with the authors for improvement, for, for how to pr pr uh, proceed. The other piece is then to think about how to write the response to the authors. So one of the things that Dave has done, which has been, I think, which is just beautiful, and I wish other journals would do this, is Dave copies the people who have done the reviews to see the actual notes that Dave sends to the author about how to improve the article. So there's nothing missing in the communication loop so that folks can kind of see the beginning to end, no matter what's, what part of the article submission process that they're in. And I think that's really important also with transparency. So back to nobody gets, you know, how to submit journal 101 class. This helps with some of that easing of, oh, I see. And I've noticed, I don't know, Dave, if you've noticed, but I noticed that when we re-ask a reviewer to submit something, because Dave sent them what Dave sent, what they provide back to us looks different. Because Better. they say, oh, <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is how I should think about forming that. It's better, just in a different, in, always just share differently so that it's more constructive rather than maybe um, 
you should do this because I think it's better. Yeah, we'll, we'll have a, a couple shameless plugs uh, as we as we go for the rest of the conversation. The first one is if you are a practitioner who is nervous about putting some of this scholarship together and getting it published, the easiest first step is to volunteer to become a reviewer. Yep. Because what that does is it exposes you to what other people are writing and it puts you in the mindset of critiquing the rigor of scholarship. Uh, and to Danielle's point before, we have some reviewers that have never reviewed before. They're new practitioners, or they're practitioners who are newly thinking about a world of critique of scholarship. And they might send a review back saying, oh, this article is great, I really enjoyed it. And then they'll get a, the, the decision letter from me that has like eight things that we're hoping that, that we're asking the author to, to think about and improve in the writing that then sends the message to the reviewer. Oh yeah, I could think about these things too. And that next review is more positive. The process seems almost aligned with what we talk about just in general as leadership, like modeling the action you want to see, being mindful about the, the feedback you're giving, um, modeling your values. Like if you're saying developmental, but then the feedback you're giving is really harsh. It doesn't feel like, like that, that misalignment. And what we all know from working with folks, I lovingly say like under the age of 30, that alignment has to be there in order to have that commitment. And I always say we as leadership educators are just held, even in higher education, we're held to a higher standard in those spaces. And sometimes we know that and we jump in eagerly. And sometimes we we aren't aware and kind of looking around like, wow, the students or the young people are changing and we're not caught up. Right. And so it feels like accepted or not, it feels like the intentions are to have a positive experience, a learning experience, regardless of where you are in your career for that space. Does that that feel true for you all? Definitely, definitely. And, and I think if you look at, if you just look at some of the past uh, issues, the auth, like the, the people, like literally the humans that are putting these, these articles together that are getting accepted, they come from a broad variety of fields. They come from a broad variety of uh, uh, employment levels, I might say, like uh, people who have been doing this work for 30 years versus the 24-year-old graduate student putting an article together for the first time and, and, and everything in between. And that mirrors student activities or like campus activities. Like I worked in, it's funny, I was talking to one of my grad students and she was worried because she didn't have an undergraduate degree in student affairs. And I'm like, okay, so our director, he worked in insurance and has a, a business degree. I got two degrees in sport management and I walked down like our whole staff and said, like, none of us do. We all though were involved at some point and loved being involved and just wanted to do this professionally. So it almost mirrors what's happening in practice for sure. Um, thinking about that though, can you like talk a little bit about the ways in which either you or your colleagues are using the journal in the classroom? I know, again, we talk about that balanced practitioner and scholarship piece. How do you see it in, in the class? When you say class, Lauren, just to clarify, you're talking about four credit academic bearing people sitting in chairs or on, on Zoom or things like that, right? Is that yes. that's what you're talking about? Yes. Uh, Danielle, you, 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 I'm sure you could probably talk a little bit more than me about this, given your role that you play at, at Indiana. Where I see it on my campus is the student affairs departments, uh, because we are trying to write things that are highly practical for a broad variety of people. Uh, if you if you look on our uh, on our website right now, the single uh, most popular number one downloaded article uh, just came out in the last issue, and it's about professional burnout. We wrote about what burnout is, like literally, psychologically, what is burnout and what are the effects of burnout on somebody's job? And, and even more importantly, what can we do about it in campus activities? Because there are a lot of burned out folks. 
that article, I think, has hit a nerve a little bit. There's a lot of people who are interested in that, I think, for a variety of good reasons. I think one of the things that's um, that's interesting is that I don't think that the JCAPS journal is the journal that you um, assign in class to the session, you know, to a specific session about a specific topic that, you know, is going to talk about this, you know, here's the research finding from this large qualitative or quantitative study. And, um, or this is the, the article that outlines a new student development theory. How I use this is for the students to use it as the supplementary pieces that they go find on their own in order to add to their papers. So that, and I do that purposefully because my hope is that it's giving them the practice to go out and find accessible sources that are related to practice that they can use and to figure out then how it fits into the other areas that they're trying to discuss. So one of the things that's most important, right, is, and I talk with my students about this all the time, is that if you're going to make a proposal about needing something new or adjusting something or asking for funding around an initiative, you've got to go in there with more than, I think this is a great idea. Like you've got to go in there with, here's some other folks who are doing something similar. Here's where we're seeing a trend around this issue. And that's the kind of literature that they're going to be pulling from that they can get their bosses and then their bosses can take it and then talk with others. I think the professional burnout piece has hit a nerve, but I also think that it's being to say, guess what? Nationally, people are recognizing that our profession is feeling this burnout. What are we going to do about it? Because we need to really pay attention to what these folks have just outlined here on how we're going to care for each other or else we're not going to have an office left in the end. So I, so I think that that's, it's a little bit of a different approach than maybe how we think about some uses of journals, <laughs> but that's how I see it kind of as an evolution for our students. Yeah, it's definitely needed. And, and of course, knowing student affairs, we know research or, or it's, it's known, but the practice piece, what's happening right now, and how are we ensuring that the perspective being shared is being viewed at a certain level? I even think when I was running our leadership office, I, the reports you talk about, we had to do our budget reports. We had to do our student fee reports. We had to go in and justify additional staff. Um, I also think about like, we know quiet quitting has been talked about, you know, on Twitter and on Forbes and, and in those spaces. And, and, in Forbes, in those other articles, they're not talking about higher education specifically, they're just talking more broadly. But if you're talking about burnout in student affairs right now, especially when we've been an overworked industry already, you know, it was understood you were working Friday and Saturday nights, you know, it was understood you were still expected to come in nine to five, right? So, so, and, and so it's building on what's seeing, being seen broadly, but, but matching it with the, the rigor and validity that it needs to, to ensure that the powers that be are making those decisions. Yeah. I appreciate the, the application in the, in the classroom. And, you know, I think about um, certainly with graduate students, there's some different types of applications that you might have for integrating that into, you know, assignments and other types of learning activities, but, but also student affairs practitioners or leadership educators that might be teaching, you know, courses at the undergraduate level. I'd be curious for y'all, what has been some of the response or perhaps how you or some of your colleagues have used ideas or applications that have been uh, published in the journal in co-curricular 
spaces. What are what are some examples or, or stories that you've heard from readers that have said, "Oh, I, I, you know, just picked up this issue, and wow, what a great article integrating this into this program or this workshop or, or what have you." Where, where have you seen that? Sure, uh, a, a couple just quick things that, that that immediately come to mind, Dan, as as you were uh, as you were framing your question. Uh, some recent issues. We had uh, an author who highlighted the uh, the new directions in student leadership series. Uh, so this was a thousand words, which is not tremendously long. You can read a thousand words in, in about five minutes. That was an overview about why you, would, you should pick up that series, like what it's about, what specifically are the types of things that you can learn from that. And then uh, here are some highlights. Here are some things that you might want to start looking at within that series. Uh, another thing that came to my mind, uh, we had a, a, a few students, this is a, a group of students get together, uh, and they reviewed the, the reboot of the TV series Charmed, and I'm forgetting off the top of my head what channel that was on or where that was streamed, but the whole idea was this, this was a review of a TV series where the characters are in college, and it's all the messages that that series is sending out about what college is all about, uh, that we implicitly get from just watching the the plot and how we could use that in conversations that we have with students about for for good and maybe some not so good messages uh, that we we sometimes learn or think or expect what college is about. So but I'm just thinking off the top of my head, the, they're the types of things that we hear from from other practitioners in NACA saying, hey, I, I read this. I hadn't thought about that before. That's a really good idea. I love that because I watch different worlds and they come into the residence halls and I'm like, there's no security guard checking IDs. That's not realistic. So I love that. Right. And the, and the rooms are like 40 feet by 50 feet palaces with huge windows and air conditioning. And yeah. yeah. The teachers <laughs> teaching 10 students, right? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> that must be nice. The grass is always greener, right? So right. Danielle, what about you? Any Anything you've heard from any, maybe some of your students or folks doing internships, externships, where they've used I, some of I, this? I think one of the things that um, tends to happen is that folks are surprised about how useful something can be when it's framed in a way that makes, that outlines how to use it in practice. And so um, the comments that I get are, oh, well, this makes sense because there are some steps outlined here and there's not so much focus on the statistical analysis or the qualitative uh, method approach within this particular article. So I can focus more on the content of how do I use findings versus um, how did I get the findings? And I think that's both have places within our literature that are incredibly important. But I think that for practitioners, mm -hmm. it's being able to easily pull out the messages that I get is how how I can actually use this. Oh, I see how this is. And I see a strategy I could use. Or now I understand a little bit more about um, why it is that burnout is occurring and so it helps me frame my approach differently. Um, a lot of it is really more about the accessibility of writing it for practice. Yeah, yeah, and the transferability of you know how does that how does that fit in my context, right? And but sometimes just getting ideas, right, and learning about the experiences that uh, that some of these practitioners have had in their own in their own spaces and how that might fit into uh, into their own. So no, thank but, you. Yeah, but this go ahead. does actually. Uh, make me think about, Dave, one of the things we should do is collect stories. So if anyone out there has used a JCAPS <laughs> article, 
We want to hear specific, it. In a specific way or fashion, we would love to hear about it to feature it on the website. Because I actually think that's a great question and something that I think is important for us to think about how do we collect that, mm-hmm. to think about where to take the journal next. Yeah. No, it's been such a great conversation. And I, I'm really excited to get to get this out and to and to share some of the great work you, you and your team have, have been doing with this new journal. Is there anything we didn't ask you that you want to make sure that you share with our listeners? I mentioned shameless plugs before. Right. Uh, we have some open positions in JCAP. So if you're hearing this, if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're thinking, I got this thing down, I've been an author, I've done some of this stuff before, we are looking for another associate editor uh, to work alongside Danielle and some others to help uh, help us in the review and the critique and the publishing of articles. We're also looking for advisory board members. Uh, what our advisory board does is it provides us some strategic direction, uh, helps us stay on our toes, helps us keep moving forward uh, in the journal. And we're looking for folks who have been around the block a little bit and have a sense of, of the field uh, and are interested in, in volunteering some of their time, uh, maybe a total of 20 hours a year uh, on Zoom calls and critique and thought about some of those things. And uh, like I said before, we are always looking for reviewers. If any of you are out there thinking, how do I get started? Contact us and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'd be interested in reviewing some of these articles. A couple a year would be all you would start out with, uh, not a significant time commitment. But uh, if you're interested, we have, we have availability to engage you here in JCAPS. The, the additional shameless plug that I'll provide is um, to think about also if you're you're like, I have this idea about an article, but I don't really know how to get started. Please reach out to either one of us. Um, either one of us can help you or we'll connect you with somebody who can help you kind of figure out how to flush out some of those ideas. So, um, so don't just sit there with some great idea that you know is missing and there's a gap in the literature. Um, let us know and we're happy to help to create some of those connections and work with folks to um, try to develop a new piece that we can um, see submitted for Thank you all so much. We'll be sure to include some text about that when we post this on our podcast, but then also on our social media. Um, And we'll we'll end with just saying thank you so much for sharing your time. We appreciate your comments, love the conversation, and appreciate your work towards publishing JCAP's Journal of Campus Activities, Practice, and Scholarship. Um, Best of luck this semester. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura JB. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at theleadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. 
And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org. 